Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 20. And the last time Jesus, we saw him deal with an assortment of religious leaders, from the Pharisees to the rich young ruler. And today we're going to look at one of the more famous parable of the laborers. Most people, if they don't even know that much of the Bible, they've heard this. Uh, and we're going to see the disciples again misunderstanding about what ministry and leadership is all about. So I'll jump in with verse 1. Jesus says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give you. And they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one hired us. He said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, uh, you will receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to the steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those came who were hired about the 11th hour, they each received a denarius or a day's pay. So we've seen this before. The kingdom of heaven is like, all right? We know that this has a spiritual and an internal application. We know he's going to talk about something you would see in the physical realm and make a a spiritual truth out of that, okay? But the question is, how do we know what this means? Well, we don't know what it means until we understand what the symbols are. Who are the characters? Who are the players in this? Number one, the landowner. This is an easy one. It's God. He owns everything and has unlimited resources. He is a sovereign being. And he distributes severally as he will, as we also hear that about the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit gifts. We can look at this as uh, he, he distributes grace, salvation, rewards, abundant life, whatever you can imagine that's good. The Bible says, James says, that all good gifts come down from the Father. Uh, Two, the laborers. Now, we're going to talk about two different groups. Well, of course, they represent people. We're going to talk about the early group and the later group of laborers. And three, the denarius. Yes, in the parable, it is a day's wage, but what does it represent? Now, my challenge here is to uh, reach those who are new to the word of God, and you just want to know, hey, what does this mean, Pastor Joe? And then others of you who have been studying the Bible for years and want to know the weightier things. So that's the challenge in every message that I put together. So let me start with the weightier things. Two problems that some get hung up on. Number one is the fact that they work. Well, do we work for our salvation? You know, these are the questions that come up. Of course we don't. All right. Um, And also the fixed rate of pay, regardless of hours. That doesn't seem fair on the surface, does it? And we'll go into that, okay? Of course, this is God, so everything is fair. So we look at salvation, number one. Salvation can be represented here in its final form. However, it is truly fixed. Everyone gets the same salvation. None of us get more salvation than the other. We all get the wonderful promises of eternal life. So it's a fixed rate. However, we don't work for it. But we do see that that. Uh, guys work different hours and they get the same rate of pay in the sense so it doesn't really fit with working for it, which is a good thing. Two, well, if we look at chapter 19, which we just came off of, the apostles were asking, what are we going to get, Lord? We've left everything to follow you. So we can see spiritual rewards in this. Certainly, contextually, it fits. 
Do we work for them? Sure we do. Sure we do. We work, we, but we, we do it with joy. I mean, it's not a chore for us, because if it is, we're doing it with the wrong heart. So we do work for these spiritual rewards, and there is a variance, okay, of the rate of pay, uh, depending on effort, sacrifice, length, and things like that. Three, this can be looked at as a general picture of grace. Now, you're not going to understand anything about this parable until you understand what grace means. Grace. It means unmerited favor. It means that I'm a sinner. Starting from your pastor all the way down, we're sinners. And we deserve punishment for those sins. Our sins have separated from, from us from God, right? We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've read all those scriptures. So what do we deserve for sins? Not to be with God, but punishment. However, through Jesus Christ, who paid for those sins, we get unmerited favor. So now we, we do bad things, we sin. But we follow the Lord, we trust in him as our Lord and Savior, and all those sins are paid for. So we don't get punishment for sins, but we get eternal life. That's almost as if somebody um, burglarizes a, a residence and steals stuff and roughs up the occupants, and then they go to court, and uh, they find out in the court that all charges are dropped, and they walk away with a $10,000 check on top of it. That's crazy. But that would be grace. Now understand, it's not a perfect one-for-one because somebody had to pay for what that guy did. And Jesus paid the price. All right? So that's, that's your grace thing. And certainly grace will encompass, in a general form, salvation and spiritual rewards. Grace truly varies, but it isn't merited. We don't work for it. So... Theologians will pick this apart from millennia and argue the points and say, well, I be- I'm in this camp. Well, I'm in that camp. And this is what I believe. And they stand firm on it. However, we want to know this morning, what does it mean? Because Jesus didn't, didn't necessarily want everyone to pick his parables apart for thousands of years. He just wanted to illustrate a spiritual truth. And we'll go into that. So let's look at this in applicable terms. How do I apply it to my life? Number one. The landowner is God, has everything set up, and then finds laborers to work in his vineyard. Heaven and its rewards have been set up, and it's now available to all that respond to the call of God's love. just want to read you something that's uh, encouraging this morning. John chapter 14, very uh, many turn to this in times of distress. Jesus says this in verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. We look at going to the marketplace. We look at this landowner picture of God going out early and calling those into his fields, right? And we can see that God sent his son into the world to save it. And what I love about this is God says, this is my vineyard. This is perfection. This is beautiful. This is what you've been missing all your life. And he goes out and he calls us. He leaves his world And and look at the parallels here. I'm going to switch back and forth. Jesus Christ left his world of bliss, perfection, heaven, to come to our world to say to us, hey, it's really great up there, and I want all of you to be there. So you can see John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. 
For God did, did not send his son into the world to condemn it. Some think that. It's not true. The Bible says it. But that through him, you know, all would be saved, right? So we can see that in here. I also believe, instead of arguing with, you know, this theologian says, I think it's rewards. This theologian says, I think it's salvation. I believe this is grace on multiple levels. I believe that Jesus Christ started this parable because of chapter 19, because the apostles wanted to know what their rewards were. So it starts with rewards. It moves to salvation. It moves to abundant life. Jesus says, I have come to give them life and that life more abundantly, not just in heaven, but here. If we truly are in the Lord and we have the joy of the Lord, every day we wake up can be an opportunity to just have an abundance, just the fact to know that, gee, I made it another day. I woke up from my sleep. I can spend another day with my loved ones. I have a a possibility to impact the world for salvation today, that abundant life. Now, let's look at this in terms of, and the term has been called, deathbed conversions. So in other words, you see these guys, they're working all day long, and the person towards the end, doesn't, they're not in the fields that long, and they get this denarius, um, a person who is maybe on their deathbed, and they know they're going to die, and they're faced with eternity. And maybe they pick up a Bible, or somebody talks to them, or they remember sermons that they've heard. And it all starts coming into play now. And they truly, they repent, and they give their heart to the Lord. They made it. See, that's how... See, this is where that word grace comes in. Boy, is he merciful. You mean that person could live like whatever their whole lives, and if they truly repent at the end, that they can be saved? Absolutely. No questions asked. Now, the caveat is, and and I've heard this question asked, what if somebody (laughs) is living their life in the world, and they know the truth, and they're going to wait, they're going to gamble and wait till the last minute, where something happens to them, and then they're going to say, okay, Lord, I'm sorry. First of all, do you think we can deceive God if our hearts are wrong? And would you really want to gamble with eternal salvation? I certainly wouldn't. Now, remember in verse 7, the latecomers weren't gambling with coming at the last minute. What did they say? Nobody hired us. See, their action is a passive action, where God's action is an active action. He seeks them out. And he asked them, why aren't you in the vineyard? Well, nobody told us. Well, I didn't know. Well, here, let me tell you about that. See, that's the beauty of the love of God, right? He, as soon as they find out and they know the truth, they're like, gee, uh, we've got to do something. We need to go into that vineyard. Yes, sign me up. I want to go. I want the denarius as well. Now, let's think about this for a moment, how God is so merciful that he gives us every opportunity to repent, And I'll just say this, I mean, it could be, the statistics are are there. Americans die of heart attacks, car crashes, um, all kinds of stuff is waiting out there. And we don't know when it's going to be our last day. We could have gotten to a car accident outside of church and we need to be extricated and we're bleeding to death. I know it's a downer on a Sunday morning, but it happens every day in the world, right? Multiple times. God is that merciful that if, you know, you really say, gee, I, I know I'm going to die. I'm, I'm faced with all my plans are, are for naught. And uh, they're just faced with that prospect of eternity. If it's truly in their heart, God is so gracious that he will accept them. But it's got to be a heart repentance. All right, that's important. Look at the thief on the cross. 
right? Jesus was, was crucified, um, dying for the sins of the world. The Roman government unwittingly uh, helped him to die for the sins of the world by putting him on that cross. And there was two thieves, one on the right hand and one on the left on those crosses. And what happened was one mocked him and the other one repented. And he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he says, for truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So here's a guy condemned to death next to Jesus, deserved what he got, told the other guy on the cross, what are you giving him a hard time for? We got what we deserved. He did nothing wrong. So, and he's, he's dying, didn't get a chance to come off and get baptized, didn't get a chance to be uh, baptized in the Holy Spirit or baptized in water or whatever the case may be. It was the last moments of his life. And Jesus says, today, you will be with me in paradise. I think that's very encouraging for us this morning. And even for the average believer, every day is an opportunity for God to bestow his grace upon us. So the word for today is definitely grace. Now this brings us to the angry laborers in the field who were there from the beginning. This is the early group. We're going to switch groups now and take a look at that, starting with verse 10. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received each a denarius. And when they had received it, they murmured, they complained, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. Many today get, get mad. I mean, I, I'll share, I'm sure you've shared. Well, you mean that at the last minute somebody could, and they take the same position as these, uh, this first group. Well, that's not fair. That's not fair. God's not fair. You know, he gives everyone the same opportunity. This is a merciful prospect that some have trouble with. Now, in the original language, the third hour, all the different hours, let me just translate it for you. The first group of laborers basically came at sunrise and worked in the fields. The second group came around 5 p.m., and the pay came shortly thereafter at around sunset, depending on the time of the year and where they were. It could have been 6 o'clock or a little later. So they didn't work very long, and they got the same day's wage. How could they get the same as us? Do you see a parallel here? Remember the prodigal son? Remember, I see some smiles. You know, the one son is, is, is disrespectful to his father, takes his inheritance, lives prodigally, you know, he has wild living. The older son's at home tending and caring for his dad and, and doing things around the ranch or wherever they lived. And uh, this, the son, the younger son comes back after being completely broken, that's necessary for that repentance. And when he was broken, he came back. And he just wanted to be a slave in his father's house. Can you imagine that? Dad, I'm not even worthy to be your son. If that was a reflection of his heart, you know he was broken. So the father, of course, kills the fatted calf. He throws a party. And the older son is steamed. He is angry. He's like, you know what, father? I've been here the whole time working for you. And he did that. And he comes back. And you kill the fatted calf. There's an altercation between the older brother and the father. Some don't like that. Some, doesn't, some don't like the mercy of God. It's not fair, they say. And that's what they said here. But verse 12 is the key. He says, these last men have worked only one hour, and here it is. You made them equal to us. Equal to us. And there's the key right there, that equality. See, Christ starts with rewards, but he ends with equality. And that's what I love about my God. There's no caste system in heaven. 
There's no, I make more money over you, or um, you have more talent than me, um, and we get separated into different uh, cliques. It doesn't work like that in heaven. It works like that here, but it doesn't work like that there. It's equality, and I love that about God. Now, let's look at this and make several applications to the anger of the earlier laborers at the later laborers. Now, some see in this, and it's, it's valid, Israel and the largely Gentile church. Israel, the Jews, rejected their Messiah, but that rejected Messiah was claimed largely by the Gentiles, and the Jews were upset about that. Look at the book of, uh, of Acts. You know, Paul's like, they're like, well, we're going to go to the Gentiles. What? How could you? But you don't want them. We want everyone to have this prospect of salvation. Well, if we don't want him and we reject him, we don't want anyone else to have him. So you can see those two groups, uh, you know, the later ones versus the earlier ones. Uh, We can certainly make an application to cultural, denominational Christian looking down their nose at some with checkered pass. Chuck Smith had a revolutionary revolutionary idea in the 60s and 70s, brought many into into the kingdom of heaven, because of the hippies. The hippies refused to wear shoes. And Chuck Smith said, listen, where the other churches were saying, you, you don't come in with shoes, you don't come in the church. Chuck Smith said, we'll rip the carpets up every five or ten years, but bring them in. And there was a jealousy over that. But he had a revolutionary idea, and he didn't look down at the hippie generation. He wanted them to be saved. And a lot of them became pastors. You know? <laughs> and they've got some stories, let me tell you. <laughs> Um, and I, I see this. Uh, I, I'll hear someone say to me, you know, I, it's the summertime. I don't want to come into your church because I have tattoos. And I'll say, oh, cool, let me check out your artwork. That's the way they express themselves. Don't have a problem with that. Why is that an exclusion to coming into church? Why would we look down our nose at somebody? Uh, piercings? I tell you what, my wife says to me, Joe, you ask too many questions. Because, you know, you ever see the, the kids with the long, with the ears and these huge holes? And I'm looking through it. It's like the size of a dime, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, wow. And I'm really being genuine. I'm interested in that, that what they're doing. I wouldn't do it. It looks like it hurts too much. <laughs> you know? Even nose rings, you know? I, I, the inevitable question is, what do you do in the winter when you get a cold? You know, does that thing, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> anyway. But the truth is, listen. Every generation is going to express themselves differently. When I was a kid, I expressed myself certain ways that older folks would look at me and say, you know, that might be disrespectful. But we have to be open to any of the new counterculture, any of the the gothic kids now that are out there. Let them come in. I don't care how they dress. I just want them to hear the gospel. I want them to be in that group, maybe the latter group. We can also make the case for a new work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus spoke about the wineskins, the old, brittle, dry wineskins. Is that us? I certainly hope not. He says when you pour the new wine in the old wineskins, the wine expands and ferments, and because there's no elasticity, the wineskins break, and all the the wine comes out, it doesn't hold it. That's a picture of the Holy Spirit. You can't contain the Holy Spirit. However, as new wineskins, you're open to what the Holy Spirit will do. You know, you'll stretch, you'll shrink, you'll contract, you'll do whatever it takes to contain or or to work with the Holy Spirit. Four, serving with the right motives. We serve here because we love the Lord. That is the motive, because we want to serve with joy, not focusing on others not pulling their weight. So there's a lot of applications that we can see in this. Oh, 
They didn't pull their weight. They, we, we bore the heat of the day. How can they come in here? You know, we don't want to have the attitude, you know, I served God all my life and I'm angry about it. You know, we want to serve with joy. Verse 13. But he answered one of them and said, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first and the first last. For many are called, but few are chosen. God says, I wish to give the last one the same as I gave you. It's mine to give. Is your eye evil because I am good? God is merciful. And I, didn't, I don't know if I said the word, but the word really here, and we can look at that, is jealousy. Jealousy has got to be one of the ugliest things in the church. Jealousy drives people to do wicked and evil things, and sometimes in the church. Jealousy. Someone's more blessed than me. Someone's more better looking. Someone has more friends than me on Facebook, you know. (laughs) Whatever the case may be. Someone may be smarter or have more money. And I've said this, and I said this on Wednesday night, and it bears repeating. Do you realize that when you're jealous of someone else and you're a believer, you're saying to God, you rip me off. I'm better than them. So one of two things. What you're saying is you deserve what they have because you deserve it. You're entitled to it. Or you got ripped off. You didn't give me anything, Lord. I see all these people. They're all blessed. What about me? Oh, I would never say that. But we're saying that, with, we're saying that whether we realize we're saying that or not if we're jealous of somebody else. Verse 16. The first will be last and the last first. We keep seeing this come up. And I would say that We all, from me down, will struggle with this at times. Last. I want to get mine. I want to be first. I remember at a pastor's conference years ago, and I I give, I don't even remember who the speaker was, but the courage that it took. This guy is speaking in front of all pastors, like a thousand pastors, and he said to to the guys, your ministry will start to fail when you start to have the attitude, well, what's in it for me? I've served this long, Lord. I deserve this. Well, that's where the funny things with the money come in. That's where the funny things with the opposite sex come in. Because the the attitude is, and I said, I give this guy, I think it was K.P. O'Hannon, don't have that attitude. We serve because we love God. We serve with joy. Right? Gail Irwin said, you know you're a servant by your reaction when someone treats you like a servant. If you get really tweaked and really huffy, maybe you're not a servant, right? Uh, Too many celebrities, not enough servants. Many are called, but few are chosen. I'm going to table this until two chapters ahead, and I'll tell you why. Not every manuscript has this. My Bible actually has all the manuscripts, the, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Septuagint. I mean, it's all, everything's put in here. Uh, but... It's, I'm going to make the case for it in chapter 22 because uh, it, it really, we're going to see the relationship between God's sovereignty and man's free will and, and the choosing and the relationship. So I'm going to table that. Verse 17. Then Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the 12 disciples aside on the road and said to them, Behold, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed by the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Now he adds more than he's added before. He says, and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify. And the third day he will rise again. Now, 
This is brilliant on the Lord's part. I mean, I've seen salespeople become successful reading the Bible, counselors especially become successful. This is what you would see in crisis counseling. He doesn't whack them all at once with all the details. It's getting closer to his arrest and his death. So as it gets closer, he starts to give more information to the disciples. But sadly, they get into this thing where they're more concerned about themselves, as we'll see, and they're not really hearing him. But it's all going to come to play after his arrest. Verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said, grant these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on the left in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, we are able. So mom kind of starts out the conversation, and they they answer for her. Uh, So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brothers. Now, I can't help laughing when I try to picture this in my mind. Um, My Sicilian grandmother, God rest her soul, I could see her just being bold like this. She had a lot of moxie. Uh, And I don't know who put who up to what. Did the boys put mom up to this? Or did she say, you guys deserve this? You know what I'm saying? And she became their campaign manager. So when you kind of start to think about it, it's, it's a little humorous. But you can see that even the disciples were human. They got carried away. They got carried away with themselves, their important, their positions, and what was, gonna, what was going to happen for them. Or they would have said, Ma, we're not going along with this. Verse 24, the other disciples are angry, probably out of jealousy. They probably hoped, I hope Jesus doesn't grant it for those two. How, what do they think they're, they're doing? But probably their motives weren't good either. So you can see a little bit of a, a power struggle here. Now, James and John answer in the affirmative. Yeah, sure. Uh, it almost seems like a snap answer. Well, we'll pray about it, or, you know, what do you think, Lord? Yeah, sure, we can handle this. And the truth is, they were persecuted. But the irony is, they didn't necessarily get to sit on his left hand and his right hand. And I don't think any believer should expect that. Verse 25. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So we we see Jesus almost saying to them, you guys are missing the point. Your ideas of leadership, you're looking at the Romans. You're looking at the corrupt religious system. You're not seeing things the way the Father would see things. So you can see him having a problem with their worldly ideas. And today in ministry, we can see the same thing. You know, rock star celebrity. Uh, Christianity, it's in lights. I mean, everything is big now. Multimedia explosion. Everything that is done has to be tantalizing, you know, visual, uh, audio, um, instead of glorifying God. Uh, Ministries, ministers looking for power and authority. Corporations with a cross on them. I will tell you this, that if you're counseling or you're discipling a new believer, keep an eye on them, because there's a lot of junk out there. There's a lot of heresy. 
There's a lot of bad authors. There's a lot of things they shouldn't be uh, seeing and looking at. It's only going to stumble them. Right? So keep that in mind. They need to read their Bibles. There's a media assault out there. Verse 28, he says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, I would say this. Jesus had a goal. And he had a goal for his disciples. Right? None of them were sent out or commissioned without some type of idea of what they were going to do. And I would just say, well, what about the average Christian? You're sitting here today. What's your goal? Right? You might have to pray about that. You might have to think about that. You might say, gee, as a Christian, I don't even know what my goal is. I just kind of wake up day by day and, and kind of do the thing. Uh, it's maybe something you need to seek the Lord about. I would say this, that life is not a game. And we see that more in res- uh, Western Christianity. You know, it, it's not to worship having fun, but we're to have fun worshiping him. See, you, you can play with those like little pithy phrases uh, and just a little bit of a, of a nuance to it and, and it sets it right. We don't worship having fun. We have fun worshiping him. That's the way it needs to be. So what do we see here? The last chapter ends with a discussion of the apostles' reward. And this chapter starts with a parable of the laborers where it starts with rewards for following and serving the Lord, but it ends with a stern warning. Don't miss the warning here to the disciples and to us. Not to take the grace of God as an entitlement. Not to take it for granted and not to look down on anyone disdainfully, right? And not be jealous of uh, those that may be blessed. You know, God is merciful. We should praise the Lord when he's merciful to somebody. We also see that Jesus reminds the disciples at the, uh, of the way of the cross, a path that's often fraught with sufferings and trials if we truly are serving him. Then there's the sharp contrast of James and John missing the point of discipleship And desiring greatness, selfish ambition, my ministry, I deserve, I've worked for it. It doesn't belong in the vernacular. The chapter ends once again, forsaking his fame to go and minister to two blind men. And that's what we're going to end with today. Now, as they departed from Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road. When they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. Then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet. But they cried out all the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. So Jesus stood still and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes And immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed him. Isn't it amazing that the multitude following Jesus, hopefully a good majority of them were interested in spirituality, were interested in salvation. So this group, they follow Jesus. And what do they do? Keep them quiet. Shut them up. Who let the riffraff in here? You know, seriously, usher them out of here. They're making too much noise. We want to hear the teacher. Imagine that. In verse 32, Jesus stood still. And I I would imagine when he stopped, you could have heard a pin drop. And he called the men. He was always concerned with the least esteemed in society. Can you picture Jesus? They all want to know some tidbits. You know, they heard the rabbis, they heard the Pharisees, and and maybe they they wanted to hear something really cool from Jesus. And he stops, he calls the two blind men over, 
and, I, and I'm speculating, he might have said, you want to know what the message is? It's these guys. This is the message. The ones that you wanted to kick out of the place. There's your message right there, the two blind men. Jesus says to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they answer him. You know what's really beautiful about the Lord? He always shows us our deficit first. They knew that they had a condition that needed help. And they told him what their problem was and what they needed. And he heals them. I would say this, that the applications are manifold. Uh, If you're a sinner, I'm a sinner, okay? So the more I read the Bible, the more I realize I'm a sinner. It's more evident to me. But what the Bible does, what the Lord shows us first is our deficit. As we read the word, we see where we fall short. And there are those that don't know the Lord. And as they read the word more and more, they realize, you know what, Lord? I'm blind. I'm spiritually blind. Help me to see because I can't see. That's the beauty of God's word. That's the mirror of God's word. It shows us things about ourselves. And what the Lord does, and I've said this often, is we go from a hopeless situation because the law condemns us. It shows us that we're hopeless. And then he says, now you want to see hopeful? Here's grace. That's the beauty about what our Lord does. And what do they do? They're they're blind and they see and the logical response is to follow Jesus. Would it be a shame that if we learn the things of the scripture, if we learn the truth about ourselves and the world around us in the spiritual realm, and we finally get to see, the logical response is to follow the Lord. That's all we can do. So as we close today, uh, you know, we just want to look at what we've seen here. And, you know, all the, the beauty, all the, the goodness, and all the grace. So that's your encouraging message for this, for this morning, to really understand all those facets of grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven.